On this episode of A State of Control, we talk about the difference between software architecture and just simply A-B programming. Why is it important? What are the criteria that need to be met? And what are the potential outcomes of a good software architected system? All that and more on A State of Control. The network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. A state of control. State of Control, Episode 83, Code Hygiene. Support for AV Nation is brought to you by Extron, industry-leading technology backed by world-class support. Welcome to A State of Control, an AV Nation podcast that highlights the control, programming, and automation aspects of the AV industry. My name is Steve Greenblatt, and I'm your host. Thanks for joining us today. So on today's show, we're going to be talking about um, a little bit of the nuances of of AV control, and and we're going to get into the difference between what we would refer to as software architecture versus what is traditionally looked at as just simply AV programming. So with me to discuss this are two returning guests, and I'll introduce them in a minute. And before I do, I'm going to say hi to my partner here at Estate of Control. He's none other than Rich Fragosa. Hey, Rich. Hey, good morning. Another West Coast greetings. Hey, I actually got a West Coast here too, so three. Oh, man. Yeah, it's the West Coast show. It is a West Coast show. No, good to be back on. Thanks for being here early, guys. Uh, next, I'd like to welcome back. He's a AV veteran. He's coming from the West Coast, as we mentioned, Pacific Northwest, to be more specific. And he's Nick Miller. How are you, Nick? I'm doing well, Steve. Thanks for having me. And uh, greetings from the surface of the sun, also known as Seattle. I know, right? I, quite I a heat wave we've been, we've been having the last few days. Absolutely. And last but not least, another returning guest. Uh, we enjoyed having him last time, so we invited him back. And he's Raj Singh. He is the uh, AVIT Design and Engineering Manager at USC. Hey, Raj. Thanks, thanks for being here. Hi, Steve. Uh, nice to be here as well, too, and great to be with all you guys. And uh, I'm glad to be back at the show. I'm looking forward to having discussions on control and state of control and uh, uh, you know everything that goes along with it. I thank you for having me back. You're welcome, and uh, you came to the right place. <laughs> so, um, as I mentioned, um, on our show, uh, we t- spend a lot of time talking about the differences between con- programming and, and configuration and, and what's a programmer's role going to be. And so I wanted to take a little bit of a turn on this and talk, a, if we dig a little bit deeper, um, what do we look at when we are really getting into programming? So in some of those more intense projects, some of those more demanding situations, um, we we might have a programming team. And uh, on that programming team, you have programmers, but you also have somebody who's considered to be a uh, AV control architect or a software development architect. And and it's kind of a ambiguous term and we'll we'll get into that a little bit. So I'll, um, I'll kind of kick it off with Rich letting uh, us discuss what types of projects and, and, and where would we involve 
this type of a situation? What, what, what are some of the typical applications that you might see something more than just an AV programmer? I think, you know, where you deal with it, I, I've, I've viewed it as there's kind of a couple of different prongs that you'll go down the road on it. Um, you know, when you're dealing in a commercial environment, when you're dealing with thousands of deployments, uh, you need a game plan. And a game plan not only for what's being put in today, but just because of the logistics of how long it takes to implement a large-scale installation is just the time. Because from when you start from your design phase to getting all the players to sign off to, you know, maybe these typically, you know, these sites being, you know, constructed or being remodeled or being revamped. Because a lot of times when you see large-scale upgrades, it's, you know, there's, it's a construction project. You know, you've got a 60-story um, skyscraper being built or, you know, a huge addition to a campus or you have offices for, uh, you know, a corporation across the world. And so, you know, you can't ready, ready fire aim <laughs> with something like that. Um, you need to be able to take that step back and there's got to be some prognostication and, and the only way you can kind of hopefully see a little bit into the future is being able to reflect on your mistakes from the past and then work your way through. Um, so, you know, I mean, commercial obviously has that, um, education, which is why I'm glad Raj is here. Cause I'm just going to sit with my hands on my chin and listen to what Raj is going to say in a sec. Uh, uh, and then Resi, which, you know, Nick and I both have some, you know, different experiences with, um, with that, you're dealing with something completely different where you're dealing with new toys. And so, you know, a, a, a business deployment and being on the leading edge is something that you have to be because it makes fiscal sense. Residential, sometimes you have to risk being on the bleeding edge because you are dealing with a higher turnover um, in terms of how the technology is working its way through um, because these are creature comforts. And so, you know, we have in residential, um, we're dealing with huge scale marketing efforts that are trying to change the tide of the cult of personality of you want this, you need this. And so there's a whole lot that has to be considered in terms of, okay, are we prepared for this? Because, you know, a residence is going to be a little bit more static than a campus, you know, or a corporate boardroom or huddle spaces or anything else. I mean, a residence, you know, depending on the size of it, you know, a couple of years. So I've been in projects where the construction cycle for the residence from start to finish was nine and a half years. It was, you know, amazing. But every single detail about this thing was laid out. Um, and from the day that we met with the architects and the design team to the day that we kind of handed over the keys to the system, it was almost a decade. And, and technology had changed twice. We were in the middle of the digital sunset in the middle of the project. Um, so we were dealing with things that they hadn't even figured out yet. So, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, like I said, this is where um, in our industry, this is where experience pays and, and an openness to listening to other voices because you're not always going to be right, um, you know, on, on where you're placing your bet. And it's not, it's not even a red-black bet. You know, it's, it's, it's the entire roulette table, right? And you're hoping for that winner, but you're kind of hedging your bet on red-black on one side. So, you know, it's the part that does fascinate me as, as I've moved on my career. I, I uh, know, Nick, you've had some experiences in a lot of the things that Rich spoke about, and maybe you can elaborate a little bit 
about your uh, your take on like on how how does it, you know how does software architecture and how how does the planning of software kind of factor into a project? Because as Rich said, you have those either massive projects that are a lot of rooms, so you have the volume, or you could have um, one big system. And I'm thinking residential, where you, where 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 it's just ever evolving. And and I I, I learned a term a long time ago that an AV system is kind of a a living creature, and and it's just something that will will always need to be cared for, and always have changes, modifications, and updates that have to happen. So so how how d d does a a software developer um, play that role um, and, and almost oversee how how that's going to be handled? Yeah, uh, a lot of things go into play. Uh, and the way I see it, uh, when you start talking about software architecture as opposed to just programming a one-off system, you're you're going to be spending a lot more uh, of that sh uh, of that timeshare in documentation and planning than you would just actual coding. Uh, it almost gets to a 50-50 uh, ratio uh, in, a, in a lot of the bigger projects. And that ratio can go up or down depending on the, the overall size. But um, in larger projects, you're going to have a whole lot more players involved. Uh, in the commercial world, you, you're going to have an infosec group. You're going to have a, a, an IT infrastructure and systems group. And uh, you're going to have a systems monitoring group that you're going to have to, and some of these uh, teams may all overlap or or be combined into one, but those are all considerations that you have to have to make. So as the software architect of a control system, you're not just creating a universal remote control uh, at all. You are interacting with systems outside the scope of AV control so that um, it, all the players involved with the overall operations of those systems can um, can play as active stakeholders and, and, and do their job successfully as well as yours. I'm going to have Raj join in on this a little bit, and and you know I think your perspective, Raj, is being somebody who's on the client side, but also serves clients, of course. But but you also have that delicate balance between the hardware and the software. So so talk about that a little bit as to how. Um, how, how does how does that come into play, and and how do how much does software weigh into your planning for what your systems how your systems are designed and implemented? Yeah, no, I think I think those are those are great points, and that's a great question too, Steve. I mean, uh, in terms of uh, being uh, being the um, I was I was an architect here at USC prior to being manager of the team here, so I have very uh, good intimate knowledge in terms of what that process looks like. And you're absolutely right. I mean, especially given the fact that you know we're not only a customer, but we also have clients who we serve in terms of faculty and students. Uh, software plays a huge factor, and especially when we're talking about designing, architecting, programming, the hardware mix that goes along with it. And what are the different things uh, that um, are here at USC that plays to the strengths of USC, and as well as, uh, you know, things that can be not only built for today, but are scalable and that can provide services for tomorrow as well. So when we have to look at it, we have to look at it very holistically, especially from our perspective, because, um, you know, in, in a university situation or in higher education in general, a lot of the spaces in a given day, you could have multiple different users who would walk in. 
with faculty members, students, events, or different location. It could be a combination of things. So you have to design something that's intuitive enough for somebody to walk in and within minutes and have an understanding in terms of what it is, but be complex enough to integrate into everything that Nick talked about as far as, you know, InfoSec, uh, as far as making sure that with this new hybrid world we live in, how does it integrate with that? Uh, streaming technologies on the back end. So ensuring that the hardware we have is, uh, is able to support that and be able to route that and send that wherever it needs to go. There's things, so when we look at it, we look at it things very holistically from a, a design and control perspective. And everything is based on, as a user, what do they, what are the, what are the senses of the user that in, interacts with the system? What they see, what they hear, what they touch. How can we make that as seamless and frictionless as possible? So software and especially software architecture plays a huge role because when you're looking at a system holistically and from an enterprise perspective, you only get a chance to get it right once or maybe a few times. And if you get it wrong, the price to be paid for that is significant. And that's where I feel the key differentiating factor comes into play. Uh, software, it, by its nature, is iterative. And you iterate and you improve and you, you, know, you push out code that will streamline certain things. Architecture, unfortunately, is not iterative. It's kind of like hardware in some sense. You have to get it right that first time. And that's why on our end, we definitely place a high emphasis on the design side of it. And design could encompass multiple different things when it comes to control. Uh, as I mentioned, there's the, there's the environmental side in terms of what the user experiences, but then there's also the backend side, what Nick talked about as well too, and we can talk a little more about it and a deep dive into each one of those components as well. But from my perspective, I mean, I think, you know, it's equally weighed, but we have to get the architecture part right at a first shot. I, I, I would definitely agree there. And it's one of those things that is not often understood or recognized because it, it really can have a significant impact in the, the outcome, uh, especially many years down the line because of, of uh, how the system is going to potentially evolve. Um, I'll I'll, uh, I'll kind of kick it back to Nick, and maybe you know you guys can kind of jump in as you as you feel uh, comfortable. But the uh, the the whole idea that you would design a system that is that has to be programmed versus determine how a system is going to work, and then design to make that the that functionality come to life. Um, where where is the balance there? Uh, like how 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 would you recommend somebody go about that? Because I think that that also kind of describes you know architecting software you know in, in addition to how the code is actually developed. Yeah, one of the things to keep in mind is that we are uh, moving more and more towards a software-defined industry and in software-defined world uh, that we play in. There are fewer black boxes being installed every every day and in, in, in every system. Uh, and that's a result of the commoditization of the hardware down to um, down to uh, uh, CPU based software based uh, systems that can be developed in a thousand different directions as opposed to having a, uh, a dedicated box for each for each specific task. 
um, the key there is choosing products and uh, choosing an ecosystem that allows for long-term scalability, uh, especially if the goal is to grow a commercial office or, uh, or expand a residential system years down the road, you have to kind of from the start bake in that, uh, a certain amount of flexibility to be able to do those things without reinventing the wheel, without tearing out uh, massive, uh, uh, both in, in physical size as well as from a financial aspect, a whole lot of work uh, and resources that go into these things. Uh, Rich, I'll, uh, I'll kind of jump over to you. You know, one of the things that we talk about a lot is, you know, how, 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 does, a, how does a programmer evolve? And to me, I think this is a great way for somebody to, to evolve, to be able to say, I, I'm, I'm not going to be the guy who writes the code, but I'm going to define how the code is written, or I'm going to help to, to, uh, to, to, to orchestrate you know, what, what is going to happen here so that it, it actually is done right. Um, how, how does somebody go from one role to the next? Well, there's some irony that uh, somebody brought up a line a little while ago. I was, uh, I was coaching baseball and I was watching a movie the other day and, and the line kind of stuck with me is that it was a TV show or something. It was like, um, it, there's a certain time where you have to kind of be a goldfish, where you just have to kind of forget everything that you knew in that moment and be willing to start fresh. Um, you know, both, both Raj and Nick talked about it. So, you know, our software is an iterative process. But what we have to start embracing is everybody else's software is an iterative process. So, you know, it's who iterates first and then who reacts. Uh, and this past year and a half, we also learned um, this tidal shift of expectations that occurred. I mean, if you had said two years ago that everybody would all do, do you know, kindergartners would be Zooming on a daily basis, um, you, you know, that you just couldn't process that shift in how we relate to technology and how software has accelerated the process. Uh, you know, again, 20 years ago, if there was going to be an infrastructure update, right, to your control system, well, typically the control system wouldn't push that. It would be a reaction, right? There would be a thousand codecs, you know, video codecs that would have to be swapped out, right? Or like Nick was saying, I mean, this is hardware, that would literally have to be changed out that you'd go from generation X to generation Z of, of a, you know, a video codec. I mean, I remember, I know actually everybody in this room remembers the old polycoms. They were not cheap at all, you know, and then when they had their visual presence version of it, you know, because everybody wanted, uh, you know, kind of the, the, the futuristic view of what video conferencing would be. And then we'd have to do it over ISDN. I mean, it, 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 it almost makes you feel like, you know, we're, we're the, the steam locomotive guys, you know, throwing coal in it, that when you can remember that. But those were the, the building blocks for all of this. And, and what's happened now is that a big part of, 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 of the architects um, who, are, who should be involved in this, or programmers working with software architects, is bracing yourself for rapidly changing and increasing expectations and being okay with it. You've got to be okay with criticism. And that's a hard part because programmers, as a general rule, don't do well with criticism. You know, it's, you know, because you're calling, they're calling your baby ugly. So 
you gotta be willing to, you know, to to hopefully spruce up the baby and make it uh, a, a little bit more aesthetically pleasing over time. Uh, but it's, you know, it's being a goldfish, you know, quite honestly, it's like, okay, that's how it was. And I was, I was deep set in it. I was an expert in it. I was a subject matter expert. And now I just get to start all over again. And it's human nature to want to get frustrated and want to rely on what you know than to really just throw yourself deep into what you don't know. Um, and so I, I think it's less about the technical side and it is really more about how you approach your craft. Uh, and, and it is that you've got to be willing to be as hungry and thirsty for knowledge in your 20th year as you were in your 20th month. Uh, Raj, I'll, I'll kind of jump over to you and actually have, I, I want to get back to the back end stuff that you talked about, but I also wanted to just touch on something that Rich said that I think is important. You know, it is what we're talking about and, and you, uh, it was alluded to previously too about, you know, paralleling what we do and in, in the AV world to the soft, to just software industry at large is, is what we're discussing now going to help to really legitimize and get a lot more respect for what we're doing uh and 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 then also if you if you would you know I, i'd be curious to to hear a little bit more about the back end side of it but i, I know i shouldn't ask two-part questions but i, I did <laughs> yeah no i think uh rich had some great points on that steve uh as far as you know i mean i do think that uh you know where av is going um, especially we're going towards a world that is a software defined in av as well too which has been the norm in the IT world for a little bit. So we're going to a cloud-first, software-first world, software-centric world with an AV. And it does bring a lot of legitimacy because uh, when um, given the fact that AV traditionally these days falls under IT and you know having that understanding and speaking that same language within that realm helps a lot and establishes um, AV as a profession within that space, but also uh, the skill set also required is, is changing in AV as well, too. I mean, the adoption of a software-centric world, a programming world, requires reskilling and, and re-understanding of a lot of the roles, as Rich said, you know, that individuals play, uh, understanding, okay, it's not as simple as, you know, just swapping out a hardware. Now you got to play well with everybody. You know, if you have a software that's there, you know, you have to make sure it has two-factor authentication. If your organization is using, using something like single sign-on, does it play well with that? So things like that, I think, play a huge factor. And I do want to add a little bit to kind of what Rich talked about as far as on the architect and, uh, and the programming side of things. I mean, to me, the way I see it is that almost for somebody to transition from a programming mindset to an architecture mindset, you have to step back. And from a micro point of view, you have to go macro. You have to understand being an architect is almost like creating a sandbox. And the best analogy I always give people is that being an architect is almost kind of like a building, the building and the structure. And then you have different areas within that structure spaces that exist. And then you have different like tradesmen who specialize in certain things and they're programmers. They come in, they're back end, they're API, they're front end. They come in, they work on that. So making that transition from a programmer to an architect, somebody has to really kind of step back and look at things very holistically and to make sure that when the sandbox is created and when um, we take a look at it, like it has to be 
it has, it has to be almost it has to be systematized right so that way when you're designing something in the future it can still be applicable than what is right now and we can we can take that and transition to your other question with regards to the back end steve so one thing when we looked at over here at usc when we're looking at different things we tried to look at what are the kind of things we can do that will play well to our strengths, right? So when we talk about backend, it's going with things that are industry standard, not niche players, but major players. It's understanding that if we're using programming systems and standards, these are programming systems and standards that are gonna be here for a while and that can be built on rather than you know have somebody come in and there's a ramp up time, they have to learn something that's very custom uh, it could be a very obscure programming language or, you know, something that is uh, very customized and specific to that particular company that has provided that product. Um, because as, as, we, as we know, now that we are in a software-centric world with an AV as well, too, we have to ensure that we're adopting the tools of the trade that, of the world we play in. And that could be things that are, you know, standards-based programming, and the industry has been very good about adopting that things like C sharp, Python, front end things like JavaScript, you know, frameworks that have been created, making sure that, you know, when we work with different things, we're looking at the environmental factors as well too, standardization across the board. Because the thing is that when we build these systems, these systems have been built to last. And these systems, I mean, the way I see it as an architect, like if I'm not there, like what does that look like? Can somebody else come in and take this and still run with it at that point. And that goes at a very fundamental level. I mean, when you talk about as a programmer, it could be adopting tools like Git and, you know, and Confluence and Jira and Atlassian, code hygiene, making sure code has been documented correctly. So it goes from the top all the way down to the bottom. And that way ensuring that documentation is in place. So if I've onboarded somebody new or another programmer comes in or if I'm not there. So as an architect, I feel that's my responsibility is to make sure to build something that's structurally very sound and will outlast me being here or not. And that's my primary objective every time I look at a system and what can I do to make that happen. I, I got to jump in really quick. Um, for anybody watching this show, rewind the past 45 seconds that just occurred. Rewind it and play it back a dozen times. What Raj said right there will make your career. No joke. Um, Git. I, I love it, I, I, but absolutely, and I've never heard it used this way before, but that makes so much sense, which is your code hygiene. I, that is a perfect, perfect statement right there. If you want to become a master of your craft in this industry, if you want to go from being the quote-unquote programmer to the guy, rewind those past 45 seconds and play it back and live it. Absolutely focus on it because that is what separates good from great. And so I'm sorry, Raj, but that just, yeah, that just killed me. I, I couldn't agree more. I, 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 I And I think Code Hygiene is probably going to be our uh, show title. 
So uh, um, Nick, Nick, I'm going to kind of round it out with you and, and kind of let you chime in because I know you have an interesting perspective and you work as part of a team and, and you oversee some some other things. And to, to Raj's point, which is something we've discussed on the show before, and Rich and I have had several conversations with, with a bunch of different people, you know, how much do, how important is it how code is actually written like to the whole idea of code hygiene is it uh, you know do is it important now to dictate or define as as the architect or the manager how i want the code written this way and this is how we're we're going to be interfacing together to make this project work Absolutely. Uh, conventions and standards are hugely important for projects of virtually any size um, because uh, of the what I typically refer to as the hit by the bus uh, situation. If I develop and design and program a system that I understand and functions well and I get hit by a bus the next day, is this a system that someone else can pick up and take the lead on? Um, and, and I think that's the biggest question that customers have uh, when interacting with them. Um, I always like to say everyone is sales. Uh, as much as we as control system programmers and developers don't, don't like the idea, we are by extension in sales. We sell to our customers uh, on a daily basis. So when you're considering um, how to go about developing uh, a platform or an architecture, you have to consider the customer mindset of, is this a proprietary language that one group or one company is in control of? Or are you developing in a language that is open sourced, open standards that there are thousands of developers on that have a uh, deep rooted knowledge of? Um, similarly, is this an open, uh, are you using uh, software that is highly dependent on open source packages that may become vulnerable uh, in the future and would require a high touch maintenance cycle, um, things of that nature. So all of those things have to go into consideration at the very beginning when you start putting the parts and pieces of a solution together. Once you figure out what step Z is, where you eventually want to be, you have to start backtracking from there to define, okay, what are the solutions, products, and languages that can get us from A to Z, not just uh, in the most expedient manner possible, but uh, will provide you with the longest life cycle uh, possible. I, I think that's a great way of us wrapping this up and, and ver very good points. And, and I, I uh, couldn't agree more. I, I think this is going to be a very important episode for others to be listening to because this is really where we, we need to be heading and, and some things that don't get talked about enough. So thank you guys for being part of that. Um, uh, with that, I, I'd like to... Uh, go around and, and uh, thank you individually. Um, Nick Miller, uh, how can people get in touch with you and learn more about what you're up to? Yeah, you can uh, keep up with me on Twitter primarily at Nick Mill, N-I-C-K-M-I-L. Uh, all thoughts and opinions are my own, as always. Have to throw that disclaimer in there. Uh, but yeah, uh, keep up with me on Twitter. Okay, and hope to see you here as well. And uh, Raj Singh from USC, how can people get in touch with you and how can uh, they learn more about what you're doing at USC? 
Yeah, so uh, they can reach me at my email at usaitsraj.singh, that's R-A-J dot S-I-N-G-H at USC edu, or they can search for me at LinkedIn, and they should be able to reach me over there as well, too, and I'm happy to connect with anybody. I am active on Twitter, uh, not as much. I need to remember what my handles are as well, but I look forward to hearing from everybody as well. Absolutely, and th- thanks for being a part of the show, and we'll, I'm sure we'll have you back on sometime in the near future, and uh Great, great conversation. Uh, I'm sure you agree, Rich. How, uh, if you have any uh, more uh, tips for anybody, uh, why don't you join, jump in? But otherwise, let everyone know how they can reach you and learn more about what you're up to. We're going to just form our own spinoff show called Talking with Raj. I'm telling you. So, <laughs> um, I mean, follow these guys first but if if you absolutely have to uh, bottom feed and look for me um you can find me on twitter at rfragosa you can type my name into the interwebs um but first and foremost i hope you find me here on avnation.tv in our suite of shows here with steve my partner in crime uh yesterday i actually recorded resi week with my good friend matt scott um we had tons of shows av week and social and and you know i mean anything in, involved in this industry we probably have a show that will speak to you so that's the best place that you can find me and us and of course please support our sponsors absolutely and you and i are going to actually get to see each other hopefully in person at cedia coming up soon so looking forward to that uh we, we don't get to do that often enough um as as rich said go to avnation.tv to find out more about this i, I highly recommend resi week especially when rich is on and uh it's it's a great way to get the other half if you, if you are on the commercial side get get to see, hear the other half of the industry or the the other part of the picture as well as if you're on the residential side check out av week uh, de- definitely good to have some more background knowledge because we are as we say a lot, dealing with users that are, are right across the board uh, using technology in their home and, and in their work. Uh, for me, you could reach me at Steve Greenblatt on most social platforms. Um, and you can also reach my company, Control Concepts, at controlconcepts.net. Um, as I mentioned, they'll be uh, at Cedia, so look forward to seeing some people there. Uh, please also uh, leave us a review or or. Um, give us the honor of resharing the show, and uh, we, we'd love to make sure that more people get to hear it and get to learn from uh, the, the wisdom of our guests and get to uh, reach out and, and connect with us. So uh, please do that if you would, and, uh, and leave us a, a comment or a review or a rating. Uh, that would really make our day. Um, with that said, uh, that's all we have for today on State of Control. 